Hello and welcome to American Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. Our guest for this episode is documentary filmmaker Casey Cassidy. Casey recently produced and directed the award-winning film Sushi Size Me, which documents a high school teacher and basketball coach who accepted the challenge to eat $1,500 worth of sushi over the course of a month and document the experience. Casey has a strong background in what has become known as reality TV. We discuss his experience on these types of shows, which include hidden camera and hoax shows like Scare Tactics and Punked. We talk about Casey's work as a director of photography on the documentary The Green Rush, which told the story of illicit marijuana farming in Northern California. I attended college with Casey at the Murrow School of Communication at Washington State University. We compare our time in college editing tape to tape versus the current state of technology. We discuss ethics and comedy and how content has changed over the years. Thank you for joining us on this episode of American Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and find us on social media. And now I present my conversation with filmmaker Casey Cassidy. All right, well, I'm here with uh, Casey Cassidy, producer and director of um, Sushi Size Me, a new film that's hitting this festival circuit right now. How's it going, Casey? It's good, Shane. Thanks, man. Thanks for taking the time. It's always always glad to talk to a former Murrow kid. Indeed. Uh, I appreciate the love, man. Yeah, so tell me about Sushi Size Me. Uh you know, the ebb and flows and uh, peaks and valleys of the business down here have always been kind of iffy. You know, I've been in L.A. for 17 years, and one thing I do always when work is slow is make my own stuff. Yeah. So we start we started this project in January when I wasn't working that much um, during the teacher strike, the first time that uh, L.A. Unified Teachers have striked in 30 years. And I happen to have a very close friend of mine, uh, that I met in the stand-up circuit down here, who's actually a husky, uh, and Leo, um, you know, decided he he wanted to try this kind of super size me esque challenge by going the opposite direction. So instead instead of just eating junk food for thirty days, he ate sushi only for thirty days, and he's not a real big fan of sushi. Um, so, you know, it was, it started as a punchline in one of his stand-up sets like a year ago. And when he finally had the time away from teaching and coaching, he's the varsity basketball coach at San Fernando high school out here in the Valley. Um, we started shooting it on iPhones. I said, okay, let's do it. You know, you got to do it though, for real and keep a video documentary of it with your iPhone for 30 days. And on like day two of the strike, we started this project because he didn't know how long it was going to last. And um, another colleague of mine, Nick Thomas, who's also a Husky, right? There's like 50 of his Cougs in L.A. and like three Huskies. But they're pretty successful, pretty smart guys. Uh, Nick wrote the movie Let's Be Cops. Um and he was, he's an overall executive at Fox. He does big features, you know, with the biggest stars there are. I met him when he was an actor on Scare Tactics, which was a, you know, Cougar production back in the day. So kind of some husky love. Nick's like, if Leo's really going to do it and you guys are really going to shoot this, I'll pay for the sushi. So we gave him 1500 bucks, basically 50 a day to, uh, to get this thing done and, you know, I ended up really happy with the project because I think a lot of people know Leo in the stand-up world down here. Uh-huh. 
and uh, to see him, you know, kind of bare naked as a teacher in the struggles of a civil surgeon, uh, servant, rather, um, it really it hit the audience big. And we won the Culver City Film Festival last weekend for Best Short Documentary, the <clears throat> Audience Award, so, okay. which to me is more important than the overall. I mean, if the audience loves it, that's what, you know, distributors are looking for. So, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of the nuts and bolts of of the doc. It ended up being a half hour, and you know, next year we go out and look for a distributor, or maybe make a series out of it. You know, it's something that I think we could easily do with any number of people that have never tried sushi, or are you know looking to lose weight. You know, I'd give anybody a five dollar selfie stick of fifteen hundred bucks to get me this kind of content. So, you know, there's lots of ways to go with it from here. I don't know. It's still, it's still the Wild West and digital. And, um, you know, this could either be a one-off or a pilot, in my opinion. Interesting. Very cool. So one thing I like to do here on American Podcast is um, just kind of capture people's stories, capture their way of life. So audience isn't going to really understand what you mean by a pilot or, um, you know, shopping it out to distribution or, or maybe even doing a series with it. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about um, your background and how you could take this 30-minute documentary that's shot on iPhone and how can you shop that to make money on it and what does that look like? Right. No, good question. Um, one of the first things I was told when I moved to L.A. almost 18 years ago was that there are no rules, you know, and that's become even more apparent now with the vertical platforms out there. I sh- show run very short, uh, you know, quote unquote shows for Snapchat, you know, so, you know, when we were at Murrow, we're shooting, uh, basically square TV for three and then HD came around, you know, 16 by nine. Now I'm shooting nine by 16, you know, all those times. Yeah. When my mom first got an iPhone and she was taking pictures, I was like, mom, does the TV on your wall look this way or this way? And now I can't even say that anymore because there's just as much value in putting your TV sideways, you know, in the living room if if you're really looking to to you know take over that space. And um, so there is some mixed format stuff in the film, okay, um, which I think is a bonus, right? Because Kids that use Snapchat don't watch TV, and people that watch TV don't use Snapchat. So trying to to bring those two things together um, with our content and finding ways to use both and deliver it both ways. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, you know, we got this thing in the can. We have a W under our belt now, and now I have to go see – with with that prowess, with that little W, oh, audiences loved it. Cool, yeah, I'll look at it. So I, I've been represented by a talent agency down here, Paradigm, for the better part of ten years, and they don't give me a lot of work, but I'm covered, you know, with an agent and a lawyer, so that when I go in and pitch ideas, they're not immediately stolen. Okay, you know that there is a a, a trail of of when you go out and pitch, but it's a long process. <clears throat> like I said, we started this documentary in January during the teacher strike. And here at the end of 2019, we have what I consider a finished product, even though, you know, we sought out to shot, shoot something longer than a half hour. Um, 
but it is what it is. And now, you know, come February, March next year, networks start looking for programming and content is king still. And we have a product that's um, new, innovative. We bought the URL, you know, so we own Sushi Size Me uh-huh. and and all those things. You know, I have a couple of uh, notable guest appearances in the film too. Um, this great filmmaker, Chris Bell, uh, he did Bigger, Stronger, Faster uh, and a number of other movies that are on Netflix and various platforms, but he's kind of a nutritionist expert that Nick brought in to help us consult on what we were really doing at the beginning. So, you know, maybe, maybe that alone, since he's kind of a big name could get us in the door to a meeting, um, pilot wise, as far as explaining that, you know, a television pilot is the first episode. It's the proof of concept and sushi size me to me, uh, could be that, especially since we did this for so cheap. You know, I all my time and the only camera equipment we had on the whole movie was two iPhones and one selfie stick that we would share. He would take it to school, and then when he was coaching his basketball games, I would sit in the audience and shoot with the selfie stick. So, you know, at a cost-efficiency level, this is content that I can get you for 2500 bucks. you know, per half hour, which in digital could end up being six five-minute episodes, for example. Uh-huh. You know, bring on a soy sauce sponsor, you know, give it a name. But the business end is really after the fact. Um, when you're a content creator like me, it's more like make the movie, get it out there, find distribution, and the sponsors show up right after that. Okay. It's, it's interesting talking with you because we both went to – the Murrow School of Communication at Washington State University around 2000. Go Cougs! Go Cougs. Yep. When, I mean, you and I, we learned to edit tape to tape. Um, <laughs> right. Were you using yeah. the, the three-quarter inch VHS uh, cable eight stuff at all? Uh, not three-quarter. I was doing SVHS. Okay, okay. Uh, but our tracks for, for radio, we were actually splicing eight-track for our, our carts. Remember? You oh, like yeah. Actually cut the tape and then put a piece of tape over it. That's how we cut carts on eight-track for radio. So, so. What, so explain what a cart is and how does that apply to radio? Well, if you're doing you know a 30-second spot that you would play over and over inside of your program, uh-huh. Now, you know, you can just have a 30-second video or, uh, sorry, 30-second clip that you can play on your computer. But when we were going to school, you had to plug in an 8-track, <laughs> an 8-track, you know, that was uh, used in the or late 70s, early 80s as, you know, before cassette tape, there was 8-track tape. So and that would be like the like the bump, like KWSU live from the Palouse. Right. Exa- exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah. Th- and, you know, honestly, I think we have an advantage over some of the kids today that were, you know, born with an iPhone that know how to cut video on their laptops or, or um, iPads, you know, I think we have a slight advantage in seeing that how archaic it was and it makes everything else really, really simple. 
Um, we, you know, we were cutting our projects at WSU on SVHS decks, tape to tape. And then my first job in Kennewick, right after I graduated, they were still doing, you know, Panasonic tape to tape decks. Uh -huh. So if I hadn't had that experience, had I been trained only on nonlinear and I went to a news affiliate, like my path was, then I wouldn't know how to use tape to tape. So nonlinear is very easy compared to having to physically cut a piece of tape. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting to have that linear approach and having to um, prepare before you edit. Right. And you have actual physical tape that you have to deal with linear time to work with it. And now you can shoot. Yeah. You can shoot 10 gigs of stuff and then drop it on your desktop and just kind of scroll through it. So you don't really have, it's like shooting film. Like you would actually have to pay for every foot of film. Right. It's a whole different approach. You know, Media 100 was the first nonlinear editing program that showed up on the WSU campus when I was there in 1998. Yeah. And I remember doing projects in a crunch at WSU that were supposed to be edited SVHS, but we would use <laughs> Media 100 and then splice in one kind of like shitty frame, you know, <laughs> to make it look like you did it tape to tape. Like actually put in a cross dissolve of a random frame so that they knew that, oh, well, you know, no professional editor on nonlinear would let this go. So that's hilarious. Yeah, I, did, I, I did a couple of rushed Cable 8 projects like that. I got, I got like busted. I didn't really get busted, but I got a lot of flack because I did a project, a 455 project on the Media 100 when we first mm -hmm. got it. And, right. uh, and like I won like an award for it. And a bunch oh, no. of students Scandalous, got Scandalous, bro. They were Scandalous. mad. So mad because they're like, you used the what? You didn't do it tape to well, tape? And, and that, I mean, that in, in itself is such a like restrictive attitude towards creative development you know what i mean this is brand new technology and you're getting dinged for using it so and that i think yeah, had like I, four video channels of like right. it was like six audio maximum. channels and four video channels maximum yeah <laughs> yeah well we didn't have cell phones in college i didn't have a cell phone in pullman yeah you know when when we were going to meet up on the weekends at a friend's house or at a bar or something uh you were either there or you weren't there was no you know texting and facetime to get you there or or you know had to actually go to the library instead of just googling it so again we're you know i guess we're dinosaurs but it was nice to get a little taste of what the real dinosaurs were because you know before audio tape and videotape it was actual film that that pioneers in our industry were using and they thought video was what we think of nonlinear. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what's what's interesting is that our like love to hear your your thoughts on storytelling because story is story, and whether you you're telling it with like picture cards, you know, a comic book strip, or um, shot on an iPhone, or shot on a red or a thirty five millimeter camera, um, like the storytelling aspect. How do you approach a story? You know, in my experience. Uh, big, my fourth documentary, now independent documentary. I've worked on gobs of reality shows and seen it done multiple ways. But the intimacy of just kind of one guy, one camera is, I think, a lot easier than having all these expectations from a network or the production company or EPs that don't ever come out to set. The way I shoot 
documentary film is I'm in there, you know, I'm in the shit. I'm living, I'm living with the person who's, who's on camera. Uh And when the camera's not rolling, just trying to figure out other ways to keep them comfortable and, you know, keep their spirits up because it's tough, you know, putting yourself out there like Leo did. It's tough. It's tough to just, Hey, I'm fat. I want to lose weight. And, you know, I'm, I'm a struggling teacher. It's it's tough to do that and and to trust somebody like me. So, you know, in my experience, again, whether Leo and I are fortunately friends long before we started this film, but um, like I said, nobody had really seen the teacher life because he can't he doesn't shoot video at school. Yeah. You know, I'm the I'm the first one that came around Leo with a video camera in his teacher coach environment and in fact you know some of the first basketball games i shot for sushi size me the kids thought i was a creeper you know they're like <laughs> hey San- sanders there's some mustache dude shooting video of us you know freaking out kind of and um him saying oh he's you know he's with me getting game tape but um in previous documentaries, you know, in the Green Rush, there was a huge trust issue. Uh, we were basically introduced to those three separate outdoor marijuana farmers, and we got the green light to come up and start shooting with them for a full year, starting from when they put their plants into the ground to when they bagged it all up at the end of the year. So as you can imagine, their whole livelihood is in the ground. and the last thing they need is a bunch of video cameras around. Mm -hmm. So in order to gain that trust, you kind of have to just get out there and do it and, and know that you're doing it to tell their story. Yes. And for them, you know, to not, to, to give it all to you, they have to trust you. So how do you you build that trust? It's being there. It's working just as hard. It's like we're shooting, which is work watching them work, which is work. So in a way, we're kind of working together, uh-huh. you know, with, with the Billy Lane documentary. He went out on the road, and we f- we were also out on the road. So he would show up to Daytona. He would show up to Sturgis, and we were there with our team, hanging the lights, hanging the monitors, doing the thing. So, you know, they see you working alongside them, and that team building is how you build the trust. Cool. Talk to me about the the Green Rush movie, um, and what why was that movie made? Um, like going into the movie, and then what kind of reactions did you see from it? Well, I consider the Green Rush um, our most successful documentary so far, just because um, now with the prolifer proliferation of legalization and of recreational cannabis what we did back then all the all the people on camera were wearing masks you know now there's just gobs of youtube channels of people growing weed so it was super risque and the challenge of you know making sure that we didn't disclose their identities uh, or their whereabouts throughout the process, right, from when we met them to when we started shooting to post-production to where now I'm in the Sacramento Film Festival and it's getting exposure, you know, that the pressure kind of increases the, the, um, 
the better the movie does with audiences. So um, Jason Edwards was the director of that movie. He's also the director of Blood, Sweat, and Gears. Um, so Jay gave me a shot on Blood, Sweat, and Gears as the DP. And then since I shot it all, I was able to come in post-production as a story producer, writer, uh, kind of assistant editor. And while we were shooting that movie, we had um, the executive producer of Green Rush, Jay Allen, who was out on the road, all these motorcycle events, um, basically say, hey, I see what you guys are doing for motorcycle lifestyle. How would you like to check out this other lifestyle? And he gave us gave us the introduction to that. So, you know, it was an evolution. The one film led to the next because of the context we made um, out on the road. And like I said, putting in the work. By the time I came back to Daytona the second time, I knew the bikers and they trusted me because, hey, here we are again. A year later, this guy's still here, still doing the thing. And so we were given the introduction and then just went up there and started shooting it. Um, my producing par partner, Jeff Bunch, who's another Coug, um, we had uh, our production company at the time, and we just thought it was an important story to tell. And why not? You know, let's let's do something breakout with our with uh, what we had established, and you know, just went for it. So going into it, you're you're recording illegal activity. Are you um, letting law enforcement know that you are doing that, or are you completely undercover going out recording that stuff? Well, in Mendocino County and Humboldt County, everybody grows weed. I mean, from the little grandmas, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like grandmothers have their 12-year-old kids after school come home and trim pot. So even the sheriff's department in the various counties are all aware. You can take a drive out of any of those roads off the 101 and you'll see the little bright green you know, Seahawk eye color tufts of green under a tarp coming out of every single home out in the country. Um, no, we did not on the Green Rush uh, get in touch with law enforcement, but our growers are from the area, are friends with local law enforcement and are doing it by the book as far as the county goes. Um, I was actually a consulting producer on uh, Discovery channel series called pot cops and weed wars okay. um, which shot from the same production company at the same time and that was kind of a you know ethical soup for me because i had given them access to the growers through the green rush they're like oh casey can get us growers and i did completely different characters from the green rush but they were simultaneously shooting a story with the humboldt county sheriff so you know i kind of walked out of that series just because of, like I said, the ethical soup. You know, I'm giving you these stories. I don't want to be the guy in the middle that the growers trust. And at the same time, your other producers working with Humboldt. So, you know, it's a, it's it's all love up there in that area. Um, you know, and the Netflix series Murder Mountain was actually – kind of surprising to me because I didn't run into any stories like that with the people I dealt with. But I, I assume it's kind of folklore up there in the mountains, you know. You can't be on both sides. You got to be either a grower or, 
you know, part of the eradication effort. You can't really be the producer that does both. And that's why I think both Pot Cops and Weed Wars um, didn't go into a third season. You know, they didn't end up getting an overall deal. And it's probably because players on both sides wanted to back out of that. So from your standpoint, working with people who are doing illicit activity as a filmmaker, um, is there some tension there for you personally from day to day? I mean, is there any risk of you getting arrested by being in proximity of it? I'm just curious what that experience is like for a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely was nervous in you know, a variety of situations, especially when meeting new people and trying to bring, you know, like we had our main characters and then, oh, let's bring the cameras over and meet this guy or this trimmer. And so you never knew what you're walking into. Um, but as far as the legality of it, man, I stand behind my Murrow, you know, First Amendment. I, I, you know, I mean, I'm a reporter, even uh -huh. though I'm not working for NBC. Uh, I'm just out there as a creative artist trying to capture Americana, you know, that'll live well beyond my lifetime. And so, no, I, I mean, if anything, I would think that I, I would be uh, uh, kind of a sweat off the brow of a cop. If they showed up to a situation, they saw some documentarians there, yeah. you know, we're here, you know, actually trying to tell the story. We're not, you know, trying to smuggle anything or, you know cover for anybody we're actually getting the story out that can't be told so you know the the murrow journalist in me felt that that was always something i could fall back on you know because it's the truth it's like you know yeah we're here shooting this thing because the story hasn't been told so yeah you know what does that name murrow mean to you and and what does journalism mean to you um especially today uh it's uh, it's everything to me as far as where the country's at right now. Like, you know, I mean, I watch C-SPAN in the morning because to me that's journalism. There's this great show on from 4 to 7 a.m. called Washington Journal where they take a topic of the day and they have a call-in line and people call in. So it's a real live call-in and there's F-bombs and N-bombs and it's real live, you know, kind of – Going back to our roots of Cable 8, doing live broadcasts, live to tape, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that's what's missing a lot uh, in the current atmosphere as far as everything being kind of prepackaged and overly commercial. And I think, you know, podcasts like what you're doing is is live. That's That's real. You can't take it back once it's out there. You know, there's no chopping it up to make you sound better you either nailed it or you're an asshole you know <laughs> so to speak but yeah i didn't know what i wanted to do uh you know originally out of high school in dayton i went to flight school in moses lake i thought i was going to be a crop duster for my dad and then ended up taking a job as a snowcat driver in lake tahoe when I was 21 before, between, after I dropped out, <laughs> out of flight school and before I went to the Murrow school and, uh, you know, we worked graveyard shift and on my days off, this guy, Tom Orsi was a disc jockey for a classic rock station in Reno. 
And I would go in and sit with him on my days off just to stay on hours, you know, and he'd give me a little money, but it was more about just like checking it out. And that's inevitably what made me want to go to the Murrow school, even though I was born in Pullman and my third generation Coug, uh, it was kind of, it was getting out of Eastern Washington that made me come back. And, you know, I realized doing that radio show on my days off as a snowcat driver in Tahoe that. Casey Cassidy. Hey, I could be, you know, I could be a radio guy. And that was, I went there to do radio and here I am, you know, 20 years later, um, doing television and film in Los Angeles. So, I, I mean, the, the Murrow name for me is, is everything in, in what I do ethically storytelling, you know, and on the, the pioneer end too, because he was way ahead of his time and that, I put an effort into everything I do. And oftentimes I think I'm too far ahead on most of the projects I take on. I always think, you know, like I'll, I'll do something. And then two years later, it's a hit on an idea that I felt like I've already washed over. So yeah, Moreau to me is ethics, pioneering and, and hard work. And, you know, I'm not a coal miner. I'm a documentarian and I'm really thankful for that. Yeah. What strikes me is you, Went to the Murrow School. Murrow is synonymous, that name's synonymous with ethical journalism. He was a pioneer in broadcast journalism. He had challenged McCarthy and all that during the 50s. What strikes me is I think the public idea of reality TV would stand in the face of ethical or elite journalism. Um, and yet you right. are, you are, you know, invoking the name of Murrow as a reality TV uh, professional. Um, so talk to me about that. Talk to me about ethical journalism within reality TV and what that means to you. Sure. Now, you know, when I moved to Los Angeles in 2002, after I did a two-year NBC contract in Kennewick, I thought I'd be making feature films. With like my, I thought I'd be making comedy feature films, right? But yeah. But reality TV has been the cash cow for this industry, especially in this town. And, you know, some of the early stuff I did was hidden camera, which is called reality, but it's really comedy, you know. Um, so my background and I'd say my forte is hidden camera and pranks. Okay. But as, you know, once you get into the camera union – you start getting thrown all these shows and work is work and travel is travel. You know, I've been to the South of France with Hugh Hefner on the private jet doing girls next door, you know, who's going to turn down that money and experience in life. Um, you know, I, I didn't think the show was done unethically in any way, though my girlfriend and I get into these. I love watching news. Obviously it's kind of all consuming um, for me right now, but she loves watching like Real Housewives, and I'm always, <laughs> I'm always like, how can you sit there and watch six rich women scream at each other? And she's like, well, you watch people on the news scream at each other, <laughs> so it's like it is. She's right, you know. We're 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 both taken in. We have a very peaceful life. We're both taken in by these, you know completely out of control appearance shows, you know, I mean, obviously I, I don't 
love watching people scream at each other. I'll walk out of the room during Real Housewives and she'll walk out of the room for news and we, we see it a different way. So, yeah, I, I don't watch that much reality TV except for what her and I have decided on. You know, like we like Below Deck on Bravo. And to me, that's just I, – I know a couple of the camera guys on the show and um, I watch it with a different view than she does. She follows all the characters on Instagram you know, all the characters of the reality show. While I try to tell her, I was like, hey, you know, that's probably not what really happened, um, but hard to explain unless you've been there on the set for years and years and years with characters like I have. Yeah. So we see it through different eyes. It's interesting. I, I worked in L.A. for a little bit, and I worked on special features for, for DVDs, documentaries. Mm-hmm. And at that time, all the, the studios were like, well, let's just go to our back catalog, and we'll just start making DVDs and selling those. And so that was cash money. Like That's where the money was at. Um, right, when people would buy a DVD for nineteen ninety nine, Those days are gone. <laughs> yeah. And then the value-added material, for a while, there was what the reason to buy a DVD. Um, and so, yeah, it's this thing of you move to LA to make feature films and then you have to pay the bills. And that was one thing that struck me there is the people, when I looked around at everyone working, some of the most amazingly kind, um, talented people in the world are in that area, in that city working to do what they love in a way that isn't necessarily the way they want to do it. They're doing it to make money. Um, and that just, it struck me as this huge paradox. Um, and have you seen Good Night, Good Luck? Yes. It's kind of, that's kind of Murrow's story. They show him doing all the advertising, you know, interviewing Liberace. Um, and he did that so that he could then tell the hard news that he wanted to sell or tell. Sure. No, I love that. I, I had never actually thought of it that way. But, you know, like I said at the beginning of this, you know, I wasn't working in January, so I picked up my iPhone, bought a $5 selfie stick, and shot a movie. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's something that I'm completely capable of, and not not just for fun, but for actual looking to look for a distributor next year and get another mailbox money check like I do on my other movies forever. And, you know, when I'm long gone, people are going to be watching Sushi Side of Me somewhere, you know. So, yeah, and in the meantime, I'm shooting, you know, commercials and and doing what I have to do, editing social videos, taking any contract I can get as a DP, you know, taking anything I can get as a director to try to move up that ladder. But this town will really chew you up and spit you out if you give up. So that's why, you know, aside from numerous side hustles that I have to stay afloat. I always try to shoot my own content knowing that in the end, that's mine. I own that. Yeah. Yeah. What is, um, describe LA to me. I was once told when I moved there that it takes about two or three years for you to really, you know, drive with LA. You got to kind of assimilate to LA. Um, (laughs) and my story is, uh, Oh, go ahead. No. So yeah. Tell me you coming from Eastern Washington, um, and then right. you've lived in L.A. for a good time now. Um, what is the differences between Eastern Washington and L.A.? Like, What strikes you about L.A.? Talk to me about L.A. Oh, man. I mean, the differences are enormous. And 
like, you know, I was born in Pullman, brought up in Dayton, which is just outside of Walla Walla, a very small town. Um, my family goes back to the, the Palouse area, you know, four generations. Um, and moving to Los Angeles, I was here less than 24 hours and got a job at Playboy TV as a production assistant on a show called The Weekend Flash, which is basically like the naked news. So I went from working actual local news in Kennewick to naked news and was pretty much like, hey, mom, I'm never coming home. <laughs> um, and, you know, never porno. I never shot pornography. It's just comedy with naked people. But from that jump off, there's also at least a dozen Murrow kids that were there the same time you and I were that all came down here because we didn't want to work in the news in the Northwest. We wanted to be the, you know, West Coast SNL or whatever our, our aspirations were back then. And my Cougar network has grown down here immensely. I, I mean, I'm not even far off by saying I know a hundred Cougs that work in the business down here. And we kind of take care of each other, but more so, you know, if a buddy's not able to hire you or you them, you at least know that people with similar background who've gone through the same struggle are just down the block. Yeah. And um, my hometown in eastern Washington um, was not a diverse place to grow up. Los Angeles, on the other hand, even though people who have never been to L.A. say it's a cesspool and Hollywood and libs and homeless, and, and we do have a serious homeless problem. But the one thing that I love about Los Angeles, and this has been true every single day I've been here for almost 18 years, is I meet or talk to somebody from a different ethnicity, race, culture, background, religion every day that I've been here. Just just walking my dog to the park, you know, not even trying. So um, as far as melting pots, which used to be the greatest thing about America, this is it. Like Los Angeles is it. And, you know, you can't beat the weather. It's another day in paradise. Every day I wake up here, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, traffic sucks. But I work in television. And New York City scares the shit out of me. I'm a country <laughs> kid, you know. At least here... You know, it's spread out a little bit. I know a bunch of cougs. I got cougs within two miles. I got huskies down the road. And, you know, I built the name for myself, but I still try to get out there and learn more about Los Angeles every day. If you were talking to someone that had never been to Los Angeles um, and they're going to spend like a week there, um, what are some things you think that they should check out and experience while they're there? Um. I'm, pr I'm a pretty good tour guide, actually. Friends of mine that have never been here that come down. I, you know, I lived in Hollywood. I lived in Santa Monica. I lived in Venice. Um, those things to me are the best, but you got to see Malibu. You got to see the ocean. You got to walk down Hollywood Boulevard and just the grittiness of it is, you know, the LGBTQ community and people dressed as Spider Man and, just kind of the openness along with the grungy homelessness and, you know, the drunk tourists. Like, it, it keeps you on your toes, this city. Um, I've been out here in the San Fernando Valley now for 
the better part of six years. So I'm really learning more and more about kind of the deep rooted Latino culture, you know, and my, my Spanglish is decent. So they let me pass, you know, and, uh, I worked on a golf course as a kid. I work on a golf course now on the weekends. I have an LA city job, um, that keeps me kind of rooted in that. And when they see me, they're like, you work in television, you work at the golf course. Well, yeah, I love golf. You know, I like mowing grass. And so that, again, like putting in the work, like I was talking about with my documentary work, I get a pass because I try to speak Spanish. I try to respect the culture and I'm out there doing the work, um, even though I'm, you know, one of the few Caucasian people in the workforce. Um, so Los Angeles, you know, it's whatever you want it to be. It really is. Um, my girlfriend has been down here for almost two years now, and she was working in the cannabis, the legal cannabis business in Washington. And when California legalized, I kind of convinced her, I was like, well, you know, it could be big. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here if you're willing to just go out and look and be more accepting of the city, even though to a lot of people it's daunting. But I learned the city before GPS, you know. I know every cross street in L.A. from Long Beach to Pasadena all the way to Valencia. I know the city because I, as a production assistant out here, when you're just delivering food and doing pickups, um, you learn the town. So I know the town. There isn't a neighborhood that I don't really know about. So I never really feel uncomfortable. I've never had a bad situation down here. And you know, for a, a small town kid, that was one of my biggest concerns. Like I'm going to slip up and get in the wrong spot. That's never really happened to me since I've been here. That's cool. Talk to me about the Cougar, the Cougar network down there and what makes Cougar special in your mind, Washington state graduates uh, in general, and also like the, the broadcast world. Sure. Yeah, loyalty is a big thing. You know, Cougs, we know how to lose, but we also know how to lose together, <laughs> I guess is a good way to put it. And like I said, I have several Husky friends down here and other, you know, alumni friends in the Pac-12 in general or people from Washington um, that aren't Cougs, you know. Um, so I kind of I kind of moved down here at the right time you know, having been let go from my NBC News job in Kennewick and the class of 2001 at Murrow was ahead of me. So uh -huh. I came down here, was able to get work immediately as a camera operator because I'd done that professionally doing live news in Tri-Cities for two years. So even though they came down here and put the groundwork in for me, I had more camera experience, which was higher paying at the time. Um, and on the, I mean, on the broadcast school and because of those things we talked about earlier of knowing how to do tape to tape, yeah. you know, and you have to, you have to write, shoot, edit, score, act. Um, a lot of the other people I meet in the industry, they only know how to do one thing. They didn't, they don't know how to do everything. So I think that's what often gives us a leg up on the competition. And I mean, it's all, it's the homies, man. It's the squad patrol. The guys that we started doing cable eight with doing you're in college and, and nighttime that we were so close in school. And then to come down here and actually make it happen, even though the jobs were kind of low paying, 
we were doing it. You know, we were in LA in a year and we were producing scare tactics on every level. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of, and so the, the roots of that happening for us and the proof to show it gives us a confidence um, that there's kind of nothing we can't accomplish together. And, you know, thankfully the Seahawks are good. So <laughs> whether you're a, a Husky or a Coug, you know, we can all find solace in the, in the Seattle Seahawks. We got a great team this year. So even if we're all super busy, we can at least, you know, be on a group text about Russell Wilson. That's cool. Talk to me about scare tactics. We've talked about it a little bit here, but tell me what was scare tactics um, and what was it like working on a show like that? Well, Scare Tactics was a hidden camera show on Sci-Fi Channel. Um, the initial series was hosted by Shannon Doherty, and it was produced by Halleck Healy Entertainment, Scott Halleck's a Coog. Um, his showrunner, Mike Harney, was the genius that hired all of us Cougs, us young Cougs, to come on and do these jobs, you know, non-union outside of LA. We shot the whole series in Las Vegas, season one, two, and three. And he put us all up out there, you know, like, hey, you're you're the DP, you're a writer, you're a director. So he put us all together knowing that we had that camaraderie and have already done a bunch of production, comedy production together before, and then kind of showed us the ropes and also let us blossom and would take our input and know that, you know, the perseverance behind our squad would deliver a, a quality product. So um, Scott Halleck is still the EP and owner of Scare Tactics, and they have an option out with Netflix, and it could very well come back because that's what Hollywood does now. You know, <laughs> they bring shows back. And um, I would love nothing more than to get that, you know, get the band back together and go shoot some more Scare Tactics episodes someday. But again, that was, I was in LA for a month having started doing some day playing at Playboy TV um, and then getting the full-time job on Scare Tactics and, you know, moving out to Las Vegas to stay in a hotel with all my buddies from college. And we made 70 episodes of that show you know, out in Las Vegas over the course of five or six years. Um, and the adrenaline rush from that show, as my first show still, you know, but the adrenaline rush of actually scaring the shit out of somebody to where they would jump out of a moving car or, you know, try to kick their way through a wall, that kind of the camaraderie you feel, it's, it's kind of the glue that binded us all from the beginning. And we can always relate to how uh, phenomenally exciting it was for us as first year LA people shooting this completely new format and everything we've done since then has never really reached that high. You know, it's like the first hit of a drug, you know, you get your first show it was a hidden camera show on sci-fi channel. Everything since then has been kind of like, yeah, it's all right, but it's not scare tactics. I saw this one thing on the internet a while back. And it was this guy walks into this back of this warehouse. He's kind of like a, a bigger guy. Um, and then there's like an arm with like blood hanging off. And then and then there's like another there's like another body part. And then <laughs> this guy kind of comes out like holding a leg and he's like gnawing on it. And then the guy 
that walked into that scenario, like you would think that the person would just run away and be freaking out. But this guy, he kind of gets down in a three-point position and just waits. And then as the guy walks toward him, he charges him. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, was that you guys? Yeah, I know what episode you're talking about. That's the um, that was that was one of the show within a show episodes, which are actually the the best because the victim of a hidden camera prank we call the mark, right? But some bits are written to where the mark thinks he's the star of a show, but the show goes completely wrong. So the cameras are exposed. It actually gives you a lot more okay. levity as far as what you can get away with, but. On that episode of Scare Tactics that you're talking about, um, Sven was supposedly like a cheating uh, boyfriend. And the girl in the car, uh, Brandon Rackley, was basically on a show called Like Cheaters, right? Um, I think there was, I can't remember the hook. The hook was You Got Boned. It was Dog Catchers, right? So... You, you just got boned on dog catchers. So it's a show within a show. The Mark's there to come and confront this guy. I forget what the question is. I was just kind of reliving that bit. But, yeah, that was that was us. Oh, no, keep reliving it. Well, I, you know, what, what I've learned in the hundreds of episodes of hidden camera shows I've done over the years, you know, um, from the early days, obviously, scare tactics, punked, girls behaving badly, uh, totally busted, oblivious, um, how we do it, um, deal with it. Betty White's off their rockers. You know, I've done my more than my share of hidden camera. One thing that I've really learned over the years is that I know the psychology of the mark. But you still just never know what the mark's going to do. Like when people laugh that doesn't necessarily mean they're having a good time or that they're going to pick up a screwdriver or a chair. So when you're talking about the guy going down in a three-point stance, that's fight or flight, you know? And, I mean, that's that's the essence of what makes Hidden Camera so special is that even you, you've done all this background research, you've talked to the Mark's friends, you've talked to his family, what do you think he'll do? You still don't know until it comes down to that final moment. And... To me, that's that's the ultimate voyeur documentarian thing is to to see and pretty much know what the mark's gonna do, but then have them completely surprise you and do something that you never expected. So what did the guy do in that situation? Do you remember? Well, he bum rushed Sven. They tried to tackle him basically to save the girlfriend, because you know, chivalry isn't dead. Um, but luckily, you know, I was there exposed in that bit and we were able to say, no, no, it's a show. It's a show. Don't hurt the actor. But I've seen actors get punched in the head six or seven times. You know, there was a, a scare tactics bit in the early years with Travis draft and Dave Sheridan, where Travis is driving. He picks up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker unzips a bowling bag and he's got a head in it and we'd put like a thousand titsy flies in there too so the marks in the backseat of a van a hitchhiker opens a bowling bag with a head in it and you know is we put in smell stuff the art department does an amazing job of making it as realistic as possible but this kid from the backseat he's back there with his sister he just started punching dave sheridan in the head he punched him six or seven times hockey style while we're screaming it's a show it's a show it's a show you know so again you know back to 
nothing like that has been done. I, I stand by that. And I've worked on some great shows. Um, they've tried to replicate it, but nothing like scare tactics. And, you know, we were the wild, we were the early ones on that. I don't even know if you could get away with half of the stuff we did back then, but. Yeah, was there any, ever any legal stuff issues or anything that you guys encountered? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, not me personally, but from the, the upper echelons of the production management, you know, um, the reason the scare tactics premiere, the first episode on sci-fi with Shannon Doherty did so well is because they were involved in a, a huge lawsuit with a Mark, um, who was suing them for, you know, several hundred thousand dollars at the time. So like the day before the premiere it was on CNN ticker tape and, it led it led to being the biggest premiere in the history of sci-fi at the time because it was all over the national news. So because of that lawsuit, we ended up getting free promotion out of it. I mean, it's the way that I remember it. And, you know, most of them are settled out of court, but they also, through that experience of kind of just going for it in the first season, learned, like, the ultimate way to do it in – casting people months and months in advance and doing comprehensive background checks on them, make sure they don't have a bad heart or a criminal record. So it's much safer now in everybody's approach in the hidden camera world. And uh, it's because of what we were able to get away with, kind of no harm, no foul back then. Wow. It's crazy to think of how things are today in terms of like offending people. Um or doing the wrong thing. And like we kind of were in the wild west of the 90s and the early 2000s of video of cable and right. all that. Right. Like back then it didn't seem that way at all. It just seemed like, oh, this is whatever. Right. I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I was getting at with scare tactics. I don't even know if it would necessarily fly. You'd have to kind of, you know, because we were actually doing bits about cannibals, you know, <laughs> and, and things like right now, the, I don't know, we, it, it wasn't even, it was more about really trying to present a B horror story um, in a comedic way that maybe wouldn't be taken as comedically by some now. Yeah. You're uh, so you were saying that you're in the stand up comic circuit a little bit or that you do stand up uh, comedy. I am retired from stand-up, but I have lots of friends who are genius stand-up comedians. Um, one of, one of the um, uh, kind of lighthouses in L.A. for us Cougs was the Comedy Car Hole, which is a stand-up comedy venue in a garage in Santa Monica that uh, was run by my friends for you know the better part of eight or nine years. And, you know, Norm MacDonald came through to do stand-up down there. Um, there were a lot of big studio writers that would come and test their material in the room. But, you know, everybody get up there and, you know, give give their jokes, present their jokes to an audience in, in the garage, in the backyard. And the only thing that matters is if you can make your cougar buddies laugh. So I dabbled in it was never really good. I retired a long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm more of a, yeah, I'd more of a, uh, greet the guests, greet the comics out front, get them to the, to the bar and, you know, kind of just absorb in the crowd is 
my role in that. But, I, you know, a lot of my friends have still stuck with it. And believe me, to do stand-up comedy in L.A. for 17 or 18 years, it's work, you know, and to keep fresh material and to have a day job, you know, they don't get paid to go do stand-up. Although, you know, I know a lot of actor friends who have become big successes. Um, but, you know, it's it's like uh, it's like constantly rehearsing. That's how I think of people that do stand-up. They want this stuff. They want to get off their mind. You go out there, you put it in front of the audience, see if it works, if it doesn't work, and you live to do another day, night of stand-up. Yeah. At what point is it therapy and a hobby, and at what point is it career or profession? Or is it kind of a, a like a, a mix across the board of both? Yeah. I, again, like what what I understood about LA and what was told to me first thing when I got here was there are no rules. So do your own thing, you know. Get out there and do it and keep doing it. And I think um, for people who really want to do stand up, they're not looking to do an HBO special. It's like getting out there, proving that you can still do the work, you can still write new jokes. You can keep up with the trends in the hashtag me too PC culture. I mean, standups changed. <laughs> you talk about, you talk about hidden camera and reality TV changing because of, um, sensitivity issues. Man, standup is like, you got to have your act together. If you really go for it, those really over the top gratuitous jokes really don't do it that well anymore. You know, the stuff that, you know, the Amy Schumer's of the world, just like straight tampon jokes. Those don't fly as well as they used to, I think five years ago. What do you think that is? You know, it's kind of like uh, test screening uh, our films, right? I, I've done these test screenings on our documentaries, and that's kind of what I consider this last film festival, the Culver City Film Festival for Sushi Size Me. And I was showing the rough cut to Nick Thomas, who's just a very smart writer, and he's done, you know, gobs of test screenings. My girl and I went to an early test screening of Stuber, which came out last summer, and we're able to give our input. But, you know, if you're if you turn off even two or three people in your audience because of a fat joke, because they're overweight or whatever. It affects how the whole crowd re reacts to your joke now, you know, because people are so aware of like, oh, I don't know that person. Maybe they were offended. So I'm not going to laugh because I don't want to offend them further. So I think it's an overall societal awareness about, hey, I don't know this person, you know, um, like Dave Chappelle's jokes that uh, on his latest stand-up when he gets into the uh, T-Girl jokes. And he's, you know, he always puts it off because he doesn't want to offend that one T-Girl in the audience. Well, I think that matters to everybody because people want to be more progressive. They want to be more PC and just their general interactions with strangers and, you know, to grow as a society, uh, society to be more accepting of all people. So, you know, laughing at a gay joke is the same as being the guy telling the joke. So, you know, I, I that's that's from me sitting in an audience. I laugh if it's funny, but yeah. um, some people won't laugh, even though, in, you know, inside they know it's funny if they think they're going to offend even one or two people in the audience. So I think, you know, those are the notable differences I've seen 
in stand-up performances in Los Angeles. And there are still people that go for it, go for it. But not without addressing, you know, the PC culture awareness to kind of give them a, a backdoor out of that joke. Do you remember uh, Richard Tafflinger? Of course. From WSU? Yeah. Uh, he was an amazing man. One thing I remember him saying, he was a professor at Washington State University. He had like 12 VCRs, I'm probably exaggerating, but recording every like soap opera that was going on, <laughs> daytime television. He was, I don't know what project he was doing, but he smelled of coffee and cigarettes because he always had both in his hands. Yeah. And uh, Stained mustache from it too. Nicotine, caffeine, stained mustache. One of my favorite professors, he taught screenwriting. And I remember one thing he said that's always stuck with me was that comedy is intellectual. And the moment it becomes emotional, um, it's not comedy anymore. Um, another thing he told me is that laughter is a, it's a response. It's a defense mechanism of sorts. Like it can be, it can be other, but it's also a defense mechanism. So like a lot of times when we laugh, it's kind of it's our way of coping or a coping mechanism maybe um it's sure. how we cope with something uncomfortable um and so those those two ideas of of comedy being intellectual versus emotional and that um things aren't funny when they strike us emotionally um and then also the idea of comedy as a coping mechanism you know with shock comedy and stuff like you can make someone laugh uh, but is that laughter like true joyous comedy or those ideas have always struck like kind of struck me um and what you're talking about just now of like laughing at a fat joke next to a fat person like that's affecting the audience um right it's interesting that as a society we're in a different place now i think than we were 20 years ago or even five years ago as you're saying um, yeah, no, yeah. Tafflinger was brilliant, and the problem—he was probably recording um, soap operas to try to find Murrow grads who were background extras. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, what you said, whether that was from him or from your own thoughts, it's it, it, comedy. You know, I, I look at um, like one of the best examples, Howard Stern's movie Private Parts, when he goes out and he talks about his wife's miscarriage, and then. She's so pissed off about it. But then they start giggling in bed about Clumpy Stern. You know, I mean, it, it shows like he's doing it for this shock value laughter, which people that don't know him are laughing their asses off about it. His wife is humiliated because of the joke in front of her friends, but she kind of laughs it off. And then when they come together in person, it's very serious. And then it inevitably ends in laughter because, hey, we have to get over this. Whatever. So, yeah, I mean, laughter is a gigantic range of emotions from the first time that you actually belly laugh on instinct to where you're trying to explain it and get the other people to laugh with you to where you giggle it off and move on. I think um, laughter is a huge rainbow of psychology. Yeah. Well, Sushi Size Me, I skimmed through it today. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely going to go watch it tonight. Can I watch it with my wife? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I sent you the file and, you know, unfortunately we're just, you know, we're just in this early festival stage with it. And um, I'm I'm looking for a platform and, hey, you know what? If I don't find a platform, maybe we put it out on YouTube and just cut our losses because there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, I think the story is important enough, again, to, to show the importance of teachers 
um, and what they struggle. You know, he's a literature teacher in a school district that's 98% Latino. Um, he's a big, tall, white guy. Uh, he's a varsity basketball coach, and he doesn't really get paid any extra to coach, but Leo's an athlete, so, you know, his heart's in it, and he's there to do good for these kids, you know, who are his kids year to year. He's been there for the better part of 15 years. Um, kids that struggle with addiction and family problems, you know, he's kind of a rock solid guy that they can count on. So, um, you know, aside from the joke aspect of sushi size me, you know, which was a punchline, uh, I felt like we got an excellent product on just kind of, you know, anybody ever wondered what a teacher's, a single guy teacher's life is like in an all Latino school in Los Angeles. This is what that story is. Our story actually ends up being a lot more about that than it does anything about sushi. So, you know, that was the catalyst. And what we ended up with was, you know, a complete project that shows him eating only sushi for 30 days and the ins and outs of that health-wise, but also just kind of a glimpse into his life because he was keeping a daily journal. I really want to watch it now. Because... (laughs) I, I love all the things that you said about beyond the sushi. Um, that's to me what makes a great documentary. Yeah, in, um, in so. some of my my early cuts, we had other aspects of his life in there, him doing stand up comedy and stuff. But we just really f- honed in, focused on the teaching, you know, yeah. because he's got a lot other a lot more things going on. But just to see kind of the endearing uh, life of a guy that you know, no matter. What he's got to be there for those kids the next day, you know, class starts at eight and then, you know, there's, there's coaching and practices, but you know, right now he's got a game, you know? So for a guy that has to get up at five, go and teach all day, then get on a bus, go to another school, coach a game, bring the bus back, make sure those kids get home on time. And then he has to come home and grade papers. You know, it's, it's pretty vicious. I thought uh, working in production all these years and working 12-hour shoot days and editing from home was hard, but not when it's the future, uh, you know, of 100 kids every day. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's the story that we got out there. And, you know, God bless Leo for putting his face and his heart into this thing. And, of course, Nick Thomas for taking the shot on us and, giving me great advice on how, you know, how to craft the story once we had it in the can and obviously putting up the money and just kind of, you know, having faith that, that it was a good enough story to tell. And again, that there are no rules and, you know, story is king. So let's go ahead and, and close on, on this thought. Um, Cause I wanted to ask you what kind of projects you like to work on moving forward, but really, um, kind of what this whole podcast has been about is the idea that content is king and it's constantly shifting. And so like you're saying with sushi size me, you could release stuff vertically. You can release it horizontally in four or five minute chunks. You can release a 30 minute chunk. Um, And all that content can be distributed in different ways and monetized in different ways. Um, At the core of, of Casey, what kind of content would you like to work on? moving forward um, for the next few years? 
Um, you know, I've had a couple of screenplays in the works for several years now. So my my initial goal of moving to Los Angeles was comedy features. And so I'm still trying to write one. You know, I'm still working on that. It, you know, that's that's never going to end until I get a scripted movie that's a hit comedy. You know, that's my goal down here always, even though these other things that I've really developed as a documentarian, as a shooter, as a director, as a producer, writer, um, I, I, I'm really interested in the vertical space. So aside from accomplishing a summer blockbuster comedy, you know, or a trilogy of some kind um, as a writer, producer, um, I really want to try to do something huge and innovative in the mobile vertical space and um ar is my focus right now and has been for the last two years um so i'm trying to figure out ways again to watch to get the snapchat viewer to watch television and get the television grandma to use snapchat like i'm trying to find a way um to bridge that divide and Comedy is obviously the root of everything that I do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I wish I could get into kind of the specifics of what I have cooking, but I'm so afraid somebody's going to steal my idea. I'm like this close, you know? Um, yeah. So just pitching, man, and trying new, new things, making new contacts, finding new like-minded people. Um, that are higher up than me or have more history in Hollywood or better connections and, you know, kind of creating new teams outside of my Cougar network, which is always a good thing too. You know, it's great when you get a job from a buddy, but it's even better if you get a job from somebody that nobody else knows in your circle. So I think just networking and branching out, sticking to the writing and the comedy and also trying to innovate in the the mobile vertical space right now are, are my focus for 2020. Awesome. Anything else you would like to add to the discussion or the podcast? Uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to send, you know, if you could put a link in to SushiSizeMe.com. It shows um, the trailer and it's got kind of a breakdown of Leo's story. Um, it also has links to our festivals so far, which are few, but we're looking. I've entered the film into several international mobile documentary film festivals, um, Italy and Japan. You know, in a dream world, they get Leo, uh, you know, covered in sushi on the side of a bus in Tokyo. But also at SushiSizeMe.com on our contact page, you can write in and tell us your story in the event you want to get sushi sized. You know, I, I'm potentially just going to keep going forward uh, with this concept. And if I find the right person that I can give, you know, a couple grand to and a selfie stick that'll keep their daily journal like Leo did, then, you know, Sushi Size Me uh, episode two is right around the corner. So tell us how we can find you and learn more about Casey Cassidy online. Yeah, I, I, Google me, Google Casey Cassidy, C-A-S-E-Y-C-A-S-S-E-D-A-Y, um, at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-E-D-E-Y-E on Instagram. But um, always looking to make new contacts. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, if you want to do some business that happens once in a while, you know. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So feel free to reach out. And on SushiSizeMe.com, uh, I am looking for potentially the next subject of a 30-day sushi challenge. Well, you heard it here. Contact Casey Cassidy if you want to eat sushi for 30 days <laughs> with a camera in hand. But you'll have to get background check first, I'm sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I, really I had a great time it. too, Shane. Thank you so much for reaching out, man. I really appreciate it. Right, wish you all the best and God bless. All right. You too, brother. Thank you for joining us on this episode of American Podcast. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media. This is Shane Simonson signing off until next time.